You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Known as the pacemaker for the brain, deep brain stimulation has made noteworthy progress with Parkinson's disease. So how exactly does it work, and is there potential for patients with other disorders? Joining me today is Dr. Gordon Baltuck, Director of the Center for Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Baltuck. Thank you for having me, Dr. Friedman. Tell us a little bit about deep brain stimulation. It sounds very exotic. Uh, Exactly what is this technique? Basically, deep brain stimulation is putting wires in people's brains and connecting those wires to pacemakers basic running electricity into their brains and modulating different types of disease states by running that electricity into their brain. This is not particularly new technology. It's been available since the 70s pretty much, but since the advance of some of the newer advances in imaging, we've been able to actually very, very accurately target specific parts of the brain with electrodes and attach them to those pacemakers. This is practically done through making holes in the skull, I imagine, and attaching these wires to a pacemaker similar to a cardiac pacemaker? Exactly. What we do is we put patients' heads in frames, and then this is done under IV sedation with a little bit of freezing. And after that, we go and we get imaging. After that imaging's done, we actually don't even shave any hair at all, and we make very dime-sized holes in the skull, which we actually actually cover afterwards with little caps. So it's really minimally invasive surgery. Very interesting. And I imagine the imaging is, is MR imaging? It's MR and CT, and it's often a combination of both. With fusion technology, you can get an MR a few weeks before the procedure, and you can get a CT on the day of procedure and fuse both images. It's fascinating. And we've heard about this being used for Parkinson's disease. I imagine the wires are put into the thalamic areas for that? Yeah, the most classic target now for Parkinson's disease is an area about the size of a rice crispy, and it sits right under the thalamus, and it's called the subthalamus. And we put these wires right into those, what we call these little rice krispies or the subthalamus, and that tends to be now the most popular target to treat sort of the cardinal features of Parkinson's disease, the slowness, the stiffness, the freezing, and the tremor of PD or Parkinson's disease. Another target for Parkinson's disease, which is used less, is globus pallidus internus. STN, or subthalamic nucleus, tends by far and away to be the most popular target for Parkinson's disease. And now in the past couple of years, there's been class one evidence, which has emerged published in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrating that in certain groups of patients, a surgical approach to the PD is actually does better than best medical therapy. That's very interesting. And and it sounds like we're getting very deep into the brain, that these wires are innocuous enough to surrounding tissue that there aren't a lot of side effects? A very interesting question, yes. It's brain surgery. Bad things can happen in brain surgery. You can have, you know, bad complications. We reduce that complication rate to make it very low. I think the chance of stroke, which is, I think, the worst complication, is about 1% to 2%. Certainly, you could die from a stroke, but deaths are very, very rare. It's unusual to have neurological complications from this procedure when done well, and this is not an ablative procedure per se. However, it still is brain surgery, and you can have neurological side effects from the procedure, which are often transient and then go away and often from programming because, as you just said, this is deep in the brain. 
It's close to a lot of very vital structures which do a lot of things in the nervous system. And by stimulating either too high or in the wrong direction, you can potentially have adverse effects. That makes good sense that those would be potential risks. Does medication therapy ever combine along with deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's? Absolutely. The success of a deep brain stimulation program is multifactorial, and a strong movement disorder neurologist is essential to that multidisciplinary sort of success. The neurologist has to choose the right patient for this procedure to begin with, and then after the procedure is done, the neurologist is very intimately involved with programming the stimulators and adjusting medications with those stimulators in place. Adjusting medications in Parkinson's patients can be very complex because there are a whole series of different medications to choose from. And the combinations of those medications is individualized. And I think it's both an art and a science. By the same token, the manipulation of those medications in the post-deep brain stimulation patient is really its own art. So definitely we need a, a neurologist who has experience and who is very familiar with all the intricacies of the different medications. And then it becomes a whole other type of picture once the deep brain stimulation is one of the therapeutic arms of treatment. Absolutely. I think the components are good selection of the patient, putting the lead in the right place, good management of the medication and the programming postoperatively. And other components are things like rehab. I think it's important to keep the patient moving and doing things, and I think that's another important component. And is this technology widely available or only in specialized centers at this point? This technology now has been approved for, I think, about five or six years. It's FDA-approved in the country. And I think most major university medical centers in the United States are starting to offer deep brain stimulation. You know, originally it was only a few places, but I think it started to get much more widespread acceptance in the last few years. And not only academic centers, but I think there are actually people out in practice now who are really have picked it up, showing that there really is adoption and acceptance in the community of this procedure. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health System on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and we are discussing deep brain stimulation with Dr. Gordon Baltuck of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Dr. Baltuck, this sounds very exciting for Parkinson's. Where else can this take us? Are there other disorders that have been looked at? There definitely have. There are other groups of neurologists who have looked at this and said, well, how can we use this technology to treat the uh, our disease states that we look at? The first group really was the epileptologist. So there's a long history of doing deep brain stimulation for seizures. Most of the results have been out of places like Mexico and Canada. There have been things out of the United States, but not a lot. But there are targets for epilepsy that you can use deep brain stimulation for. Now, the mechanisms are very different as the circuits are very different in epilepsy than they are in a movement disorder. But a major trial was launched and has just been finished targeting the anterior thalamic nucleus for medically intractable seizures. And we are hoping to see the results of this randomized trial should be presented in December at the American Epilepsy Society meeting. I think probably more than 100 patients were treated and there was randomization. So in this randomization, some people were turned on and some people thought they were being turned on, but they weren't being turned on. It was a 50-50 randomization. And then they studied their seizure severity and frequency. So it's going to be very exciting to see if deep brain stimulation can work for epilepsy. And these are people in whom 
nothing else works. Many of them have had either surgery, i.e. resective surgery of their brain, or they weren't candidates for any form of surgery. We're really looking forward to see what the results of this are, are going to be, and it's quite exciting. Can we feed some wires into the limbic areas and, and look at mood disorders? Yeah, I mean, this has been a very, very hot area. They've been doing it for obsessive compulsive disorder and with some very, very interesting results. And a couple of years ago, you know, the Toronto group published a series of patients and who they stimulated subgenual cingulate, which is associated with limbic projections. And they, they were able to treat a group of people with bad depression. There have been other targets for depression as well. The Brown and Cleveland Clinic group have looked at the area of sort of the subcaudate area or the anterior capsule area, also known as VC or nucleus accumbens region for treatment-resistant depression, and also have been publishing some very, very interesting pilot results. And I think the next step is to move towards what we would see as a, probably a phase two trial with some randomization to see if severe depression can be treated with stimulation. Now, this represents a form of psychosurgery. It's very different from things like ablative operations. As we said before, deep brain stimulation is reversible. We are not injuring the brain with the stimulation. We are doing modulation. But it does represent a form of, of psychosurgery, and it has to be handled very carefully. The potential certainly sounds exciting, particularly for refractory cases. You were mentioning obesity, certainly the cannabinoids and, and meridia target areas in the brain. Tell me about that. That's such a, an important problem. I mean, obesity is, as you know, is a huge health problem, and bariatric surgery is an answer to some patients, but there are also patients who, who fail bariatric surgery, and it has a complication rate associated. So there have been some targets. One is a target in the hypothalamus that has been investigated in Canada, and another potential target, again, is the nucleus accumbens for obesity. Now, these targets are different. When we discuss a hypothalamic target, we're talking about sort of appetite control. When we discuss nucleus accumbens, we're talking about reward systems, the desire to eat, different from appetite itself. One of the issues with the hypothalamus is if you have deep brain stimulation for, in the hypothalamus, you may not be hungry, but you may want to eat. And subsequently, you may just turn off your stimulators so you can eat. Accumbens is a step back and Tentatively, you could say this would get right to the reward that is associated with ingesting high-fat foods. So it is a tentative target. Has it yet been tried because it's a similar target to what you would do perform for depression? I don't think it's yet been tried for obesity, but do I think it is a potential target? I definitely think it is. There have been some very interesting results coming out of Asia on targeting this area for things like addiction, with some very interesting pilot results. Case series and end numbers are very, very low, but very interesting. There was another case that was also published in Germany last year, in which they targeted this area for obsessive-compulsive disorder, and the patient also had alcoholism, which was essentially eliminated by stimulating in this area. So a really a brave new world. As you look ahead, are there any things on the horizon that you're particularly excited about? The other really exciting thing is that when they stimulated some of these patients in their hypothalamus, they were able to improve their memory. 
And they postulate that they're stimulating into uh, fornicial systems, and they offer the possibility that they could offer memory enhancement. And now they've gone ahead in Toronto, and they're doing a small series of patients with Alzheimer's disease to see if by using fornicial stimulation, they can actually improve memory. So we're talking about stimulation to make you thinner, happier, smarter, all types of things. However, we also have to be careful because the circuitry of some of these conditions that we're discussing is much less well understood than movement disorder circuitry. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Gordon Baltuck, Director of the Center for Functional and Restorative Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania. This is Dr. Lee Friedman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.